0: It's good to be with you all this morning. If you would, uh, in your own copy of God's Word or in the Bibles in front of you, if you would turn with me to Hosea uh, chapter 13. Hosea chapter 13, and we'll look at this chapter uh, together. It's good to be with you this morning. I was reminded, as I was studying this chapter, preparing for this Sunday, uh, our uh, shepherding group is uh, going through a book together, reading through a book by Dane Ortland uh, called "Deeper." And like the name suggests, his book is about growing deeper in our walk with the Lord, how, how we can grow deeper in our faith in Jesus Christ. And I was wondering, so if you were to write a book about growing deeper, in your faith with Jesus, what, what topic, what, what place would you start? Where would you begin? It's a difficult decision. There's so many different topics we could choose from. We could start with some of the spiritual disciplines, with, with prayer, with uh, reading your word, self-discipline, the fruit of the Spirit. Maybe we could start with some theology or doctrine of Christ or doctrine of our, our union with Christ. But he doesn't start there. After just the introductory chapter, the first topic he discusses is despair, which is an interesting place to start. It can seem kind of odd. Why would we start with despair? We usually think of despair as a bad thing, but he wanted to bring our attention to the, the healthy kind of despair. That's the despair that we have when we we see God and we undersc- understand God for who he truly is, when our eyes are open to his holiness and to the, the perfectness of his law, when we understand that our lives don't measure up to what God requires of us, when, when we see ourselves for who we truly are, when we see uh, and understand the sin in our lives, when we see that sin always and inevitably leads to death and when we see that there is no hope of our salvation from death apart from Christ. See, that's the despair that he's talking about. It's only from this despair then that we truly see the joy of our redemption, the joy of our union with Christ and so as Pastor Ortland writes, he says, fallen human beings enter into joy only through the door of despair. Fullness can be had only through emptiness. So it's only through the knowledge and the understanding of our guilt, of our our sin and of our ministry, that we can understand the importance and the beauty and the wonder and the majesty of the gospel and of God's grace. This is a, a helpful illustration and introduction to our topic at hand this morning to this chapter of Hosea because this kind of despair is at the very heart of his message in this section. This chapter of Hosea, it's unique, uh, unique from the other sections because it's all despair. There is no sudden shift that's so common in in Hosea as we've seen, as we look back on previous weeks, previous chapters. There's no sudden shift from judgment to hope and from condemnation to mercy. Rather, it's, uh, these verses contain one somber declaration of punishment, of death, of destruction, that are the consequences of Israel's sin. And the Lord says matter-of-factly that this is going to happen, that there's no way out. It's a difficult passage to read, but let's look there together now. Uh, Let's read it together. Let's let's go there because that's where Scripture is bringing us. So let's go where Scripture brings us this morning. If you would, look with me at Hosea chapter 13, and I'll begin reading in verse 1. When Ephraim spoke, there was trembling. He was exalted in Israel. But he incurred guilt through Baal and died. And now they sin more and more and make for themselves metal images, idols skillfully made from their silver, all of them the work of craftsmen. It is said of them, those who offer human sacrifice kiss calves. Therefore they shall be like the morning mist or like the dew that goes away early, like the chaff that swirls from the threshing floor or like smoke from a window. But I am the Lord your God from the land of Egypt. You know no God but me, and besides me there is no Savior. It was I who knew you in the wilderness, in the land of drought. But when they had grazed, they became full. They were filled, and their heart was lifted up. Therefore they forgot me. So I am to them like a lion. Like a leopard, I will lurk beside the way. I will fall upon them like a bear robbed of her cubs. I will tear open their breast, and there I will devour them like a lion, as a wild beast would rip them open. He destroys you, O Israel, for you are against me, against your helper. Where now is your king to save you and all your cities? Where are your rulers Those of whom you said, give me a king and princes. I gave you a king in my anger, and I took him away in my wrath. The iniquity of Ephraim is bound up. His sin is kept in store. The pangs of childbirth come for him. But he is an unwise son, for at the right time he does not present himself at the opening of the womb. Shall I ransom them from the power of Sheol? Shall I redeem them from death? O death, where are your plagues? O Sheol, where is your sting? Compassion is hidden from my eyes. Though he may flourish among his brothers, the east wind, the wind of the Lord shall come, rising from the wilderness, and his fountain shall dry up. His spring shall be parched. It shall strip his treasury of every precious thing. Samaria shall bear her guilt. Because she has rebelled against her God, they shall fall by the sword, their little ones shall be dashed in pieces, and their pregnant women ripped open. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, uh, we thank you for your word. And we thank you for your word, even uh, these chapters and these verses uh, that are so hard to hear at times. But we know that this is your word, inspired by your very own spirit. Uh, written down by uh, your prophets whom you've raised up. And you're speaking them to us now. We pray that you would bless uh, the reading and the preaching of your word. Uh, We pray that you would uh, bless us, make it efficacious for us, a means of grace to us, that we would grow in our faith, grow in our love for you, in our dependence upon you, that we would trust in you in all things. Uh, May you do that work in us now by your spirit, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, this chapter in Hosea, it's uh, bringing everything together. Uh, we're near the end of, of Hosea now. Uh, chapter 14 will be a bit of an epilogue of sorts, uh, a postscript. This, this chapter, uh, Hosea is really bringing together his entire message. It's the culmination of what he's said so far. Uh, so what has Hosea's message been so far? Well, it's been one of, of judgment and hope, like we mentioned, of of judgment, and then mercy. Punishment, restoration, law, and gospel. We've seen that all throughout Hosea, but here, this chapter, something different. Hosea is wrapping up his message. He's tying everything together, and his concluding message, simply put, is that God hates sin. (laughs) That God's perfect holiness means Requires and necessitates that he must eradicate sin. He must punish sin. God's perfect justice requires the punishment of sin, and the punishment that sin requires is death. That is what Hosea is telling his audience. That's what the Spirit is communicating to us as well. Is that the wages of sin, as the Apostle Paul says, is death. Because the consequence of sin is death, Hosea tells Israel, all their past and all their present unfaithfulness must be punished with a future destruction that is coming. And this is a destruction of which God will not relent. But he's writing that to them so that they would despair of this present condition they're in, that they would despair of their sin, that they would despair of this Coming judgment and doom, and they would return to their God. God alone who has power over death. And so we could say it like that. We could say it the way we have it in in the bulletin, the title of the sermon that sin leads to death. Sin leads to death. So trust in the one who has power over death. Sin leads to death. We must understand that as a matter of fact from the very beginning. We must despair. We must understand that death exists because sin exists. And we are all sinners. So we do the math. What does that mean? It means we all face death. And since that is the case, we don't stay there. We don't stay in despair. We're going to spend some time there this morning. It might be uncomfortable. But we don't stay there. Sin leads to death, but that drives us to trust in the one who has power over death. So let's consider those two things this morning. The sin that leads to death and the one who has power over death. Well, similar to the history lesson that Hosea gave God's people in the the previous chapter, chapter 12, walking them through the life of their ancestor, their namesake, uh, Jacob, who would be renamed Israel. Now, uh, in this chapter, Hosea does something similar. Uh, he's pulling uh, events from Israel's past uh, to demonstrate to them uh, that nothing has really changed. <laughs> that they are still presently living in sin. The, the, he'll go back and forth between past and present in order to show that this future destruction that's coming is justified. That this future death is is a result of their past and their present sins. So look with me and we'll walk through this text together. Beginning in verse 1, we, we see uh, in this first verse that Israel, uh, nicknamed Ephraim here, is described when he first became a nation. He invokes a sense of power. When, when Ephraim spoke, there was trembling. When he walked into a room, people stood up straight. They took notice. When he spoke, people listened. He was a player on the, on the world stage. He was a mighty nation. But what happened? How did they lose this power? How did this, this status go away? Well, it was through idolatry. It was through Baal worship. It was through covenant unfaithfulness, through the making of images and idols, through forgetting and denying The true worship of their God. Israel forgot their God and it led to their destruction. We look down at verse 4. We see, But I am the Lord your God from the land of Egypt. You know no God but me, and besides me there is no Savior. Hosea is using language from that preamble to the Ten Commandments I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall know no other God. But me. But yet we, we know from history, from Hosea's own words, his own accusations, that they did forget their God. They were to know no other God but their God and their Savior. And yet they made many other gods for themselves. He reminds them again of their, their wilder, uh, wilderness wandering. In verse 5, it was I who knew you in the wilderness, in the land of drought, Though they grumbled against their God constantly, though they murmured against him, he fed them from heaven. He cared for them. He gave them water in this land of drought, this land of wilderness. He provided for them. He saved them. But how did they respond to that blessing of God? We see in verse six, they they had grazed. God provided for them that they grew full. And therefore they forgot Me. See the the personal, the intimate relationship that God desired with his people. God brought them out of Egypt to be a a people for himself, a nation for himself. And when they forgot God, God writes that they forgot me. I was to be a God to them. They're to be my people. They forgot me. Those were my people. even yet they were they were punished at that time we can read all about those punishments that they went through in the wilderness wandering even the wandering itself a punishment for their unfaithfulness but even still God provided for them ultimately delivering them and and bringing them into the promised land yet they still did not learn their lesson Jump over with me to verse 10. He's telling them plainly, this this destruction is coming. And so he says to them with a a biting uh, question, he presents to them, where now is your king to save you in all your cities? Where are all your rulers? Again, asking them this question to remind them of a lesson from their past that they didn't learn. He goes on, he says, Where are your rulers, those of whom you said? And now he's quoting his people. When they said, Give me a king. Give me a king and give me princes. Do you know the connection that he's making there? What lesson, what what historical event is God bringing and reminding them of? After God had delivered them and brought them into the promised land, after many years they decided that they wanted to be like all the other nations and they demanded a king. They demanded an earthly king to rule over them and in doing so they rejected God as king. That's how God describes it to his servant Samuel in 1 Samuel chapter 8. The the account of that event that God's people rejected God as king over them and they wanted an earthly king to rule over them. And so now God poses them the question The Assyrian army is at your door. Where's your king? Where's the king that you wanted so badly that you rejected me? Where is he? You see, Israel's past and Israel's present now, they're they're converging. They they didn't learn the lesson from the wilderness wanderings and yet God still provided for them. He provided manna from heaven and they didn't learn the lesson of, of demanding a king and of getting King Saul, but even then God provided for them and gave them a King David who was a man after God's own heart. But yet now, 300 years later, they still have not learned the lesson. And now we read that God's compassion has run out. Their past sins and their present sins, they've all led up to this point, this this death and destruction that now waits for them. All of this sin from all the centuries is leading now to death. Verse 14 powerful statement but before we jump back to first corinthians and we're gonna get there but before we jump back to first corinthians we have to stay in hosea for a little bit longer and what i want us to see is that as hosea is preaching this message to the people this is a message of judgment this is not a message of hope not yet it's a message of despair So look back with me at verse 14. You might have already noticed as I read it for us earlier, I I changed up some of the word order. And I read it as a question. Shall I ransom them from the power of Sheol? Shall I redeem them from death? Many English translations prefer to make this a a definite statement and and indicative, something that God will do. I I will do this. I, I will redeem them. But they're better read as a question, an interrogative. Will I do this? Shall I do this? The ESV has a footnote on this verse which suggests uh, that the phrases can be translated as questions. I would suggest that that is the way we should translate them. Why? Why why should we understand these as, as questions that God is posing? Rhetorical questions. Because look at the last line of verse 14. Here is a definitive statement. And God says, Compassion is hidden from my eyes. God's speaking here. And what does it mean that something is hidden from God's eyes? Well, it means it doesn't exist. If something's hidden from God's eyes, God doesn't have eyes, as it were but referring metaphorically, referring to God's sight. The eyes are how we we see the world. And God sees everything. God sees everything that exists. God is outside of time. So not only does he see everything all at once, but he sees everything throughout time all at once because he's outside of time. And so when we're to say that something is hidden from God's eyes, if something is hidden from God's sight, that means it doesn't exist. And what is it that doesn't exist? What is it that is hidden from God's sight? It's compassion. The word compassion here, it's, it's the word that's described of God's uh, relenting of something. God's, God's relenting of destruction. This was the word used when Moses interceded for the people because God was going to destroy his people. As they uh, had the golden calf episode, as they were wandering through the wilderness, as Hosea mentions to us and reminds them of, God was going to destroy you then, but he relented, and he had compassion. The same words also used of King Saul, which Hosea also brings to our mind. And King Saul relented that, or uh, God rather relented of making Saul king. But he didn't leave his people to destruction, but he provided for them King David, a man after God's own heart. And so we see God had relented in the past. God had had compassion and provided for his people. But at this point now, we read that this compassion, this this relenting is hidden from God's eyes this is the compassion of God that the people would have trusted it, but, but trusted in presumptuously, thinking that they could do whatever they wanted. They had the temple, they had the sacrificial system, they had all these uh, ritual and religion, and God would protect them. He would have compassion on them. But it was not the case. As they watched the Assyrian chariots and their siege towers approach all their towns and all their villages, they were crying out, maybe this time, maybe God will have compassion as he has had in the past. He will relent of this disaster. But God says definitively, he tells them compassion is hidden from my eyes. And that is why we translate these as questions. Shall I ransom them? From death? Shall I redeem them from death? Well, the answer that we expect, the answer based on that last line, the answer is no. Not this time. And so you see how that changes the meaning of those, those famous lines where God uh, calls out to death and out to Sheol, where are your plagues? Where are your sting? God is not asking, God's not wondering where they were. But God's calling death. He's calling Sheol to do their job, as it were. I will not ransom you this time, Israel. I will not redeem you. Death, Sheol, they're all yours. So I have no more compassion. Do you feel that despair? Do you feel that, that hopelessness? Can you put yourself in that audience as Hosea is preaching that message to the people? Compassion is hidden from my eyes. And this hopelessness is punctuated by that last verse, verse 16. Samaria, referring to Israel again, says, Samaria shall bear her guilt because she has rebelled against her God. They shall fall by the sword. Their little ones shall be dashed in pieces. Their pregnant women ripped open. This is what happens to God's enemies in Scripture and in the Psalms. And now God is saying, this is what is going to happen to you, O Israel, because I have given you over to death and over to Sheol. My compassion for you it's hidden from my eyes. What a uh, sad, what a difficult verse to read. I wouldn't want to read it unless it was in God's word. So do you feel the despair? Do you feel the, the hopelessness? Does it make you feel uncomfortable? This, this should. It should, it should uh, jolt us awake. It should make us feel the, the utter darkness of life apart from God's grace. Because we see in Israel's example, we see in our own lives that sin always leads to death. Death is the consequence of sin, death is what awaits all of us. And so we are right to despair, but we don't stay in despair. Sin leads to death, death. but notice even the the pronouncement of judgment, even in this pronouncement of, of judgment of death over Israel, do you notice that God is the one who is summoning death? God is the one who has authority over death and over Sheol and so since sin leads to death, we must trust in the one who has power over death. So only when we see the absolute terror of God's wrath because of sin, only when we see the abject hopelessness of Israel at the hands of death and of Sheol, only when we we truly understand and we grasp the meaning of Hosea's message of judgment in that verse, verse 14. Only then can we grasp the, the magnitude of Paul's words to the Corinthians. Only then do the words, these words of pain and and torment and death, only then do they become words of unspeakable joy. Only then, by the resurrection of Christ, do we see the great reversal of these words, these words which were a message of judgment, but now become a great refrain that we can sing with joy. This despair over death, it, it must lead us to hope and trust in the one who has power over death. We see this perfectly, we see this beautifully in Paul's uh, instructions on the resurrection in 1 Corinthians 15. And I invite you, turn there with me and let's look at 1 Corinthians 15 and see how he uses this section. Uh, Quotes from Hosea that we read from earlier. On the, on the road to Emmaus, uh, at the end of Luke's gospel, Jesus is walking with two disciples, and after he opens up their eyes to the truth of Scripture, he, uh, we're told that he instructs them, he teaches them, through everything, and, and Moses and all the prophets, everything in Scripture concerning himself. And I wonder if Hosea 13, verse 14, came up on the road to Emmaus You see, the bodily resurrection of Jesus is the great reversal of this passage in Hosea, where there was no compassion, when it was hidden from God's eyes. Christ was resurrected, and he turned this message of judgment into a message of hope. And So 1 Corinthians 15, look back up with me at uh, verse 16 and 17 and and following, and we, we can see Paul's logic here. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, not only is our faith meaningless, but we're still in sin. If Christ had not been raised, you're still in your sins. And what does sin lead to? He answers that question in verse 18. Those who have fallen in sin those who have fallen asleep in Christ have what? They've perished. If Christ has not been raised, that means we're still in our sins. And if we're still in our sins, that means we're, we'll are perish at our death. That means death still has hold over us. And if in Christ we have hope in this life only, Paul says, we are Of all people, most to be pitied. See the logic of Paul's statement there. If the resurrection is not true, then those words are still words of judgment over us. But verse 20, But in fact, Christ has been raised. And it's because he has been raised and we are united to him then he is the first fruits of the resurrection. And we all belong to that same harvest, as it were. We will be raised as he is raised. This is why the Christian has no fear of death. Because these bodies, Paul goes on to say, these bodies are uh, perishable. But they will put on the imperishable. These, these mortal bodies will put on immortality. When Christ returns, the, the dead will be raised and we'll be made like him. And it's in that moment where Paul quotes from our verse, where Paul says the, the words of the prophets will come to pass. Verses 54 and 55. This is where Paul says when, when the perishable puts on the imperishable, when the mortal puts on in, uh, immortality, then it shall come to pass, quoting from Isaiah first, death is swallowed up in victory. And now quoting from Hosea, O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? Shall I ransom them from the power of Sheol? That's the question. Shall I redeem them from death? Well now in Christ, in the resurrection, through the bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ our Lord, the answer is yes. Because Christ has been raised, our God is not dead, but he is alive, and in him death is swallowed up in victory. Jesus is the object, he is the end, he is the goal, he's the focal point of Hosea's gospel of Hosea's message. Sin leads to death, but the Messiah who pays your redemption price, the one who loves you, even in your unfaithfulness, is the one who has power over death, has defeated death, and so trust in him. So where does that leave us then as we depart from here this morning? Well, some of us here, uh, we have not gotten to that first point. You know, the Heidelberg Catechism is so helpful. It, it uh, The first question, what is your only comfort in life and in death? Your only comfort is that you're not your own, but you belong, body and soul in life and in death, to your faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. That's the first question. The second question asks, what must you know so that you may... Uh, live and die happily in this comfort, in this, in this uh, comforting arms of your Savior. What must you know? Well, the first thing it says is you have to know the greatness of your sin and misery. In other words, you have to despair. You have to go there first. You have to understand the depth of the sin and misery that you're in. Some of us here, maybe we haven't done that yet. We haven't truly wrestled with the fact that we are sinners in need of grace. And so if that is you, if you haven't wrestled through that, if you haven't done business with God, if you haven't considered God's law and the the implication it has for your life, how you measure up and fall short, well, now is the time to do that. It forces us to break these idols of self and to think that we can somehow measure up on our own. But for others of us, We don't have any problem with doing that first part. We, we understand really well our sin and our misery. We have no problem despairing, but we have a tendency to stay there. God doesn't want us to stay there. But we move to the second thing, the second thing that Hatterberg tells us we have to know. First, we know the greatness of our sin and misery, but second, we need to know how we're redeemed from, not some, but from all our sin and misery. Despair is the first place we go, but we don't stay there. We go into the loving arms of Christ. So don't make yourself to be a servant when God has called you to be a son. The sting of death is sin, Paul says, and the power of sin is the law, but thanks be to God who gives us victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. You have victory in Jesus, so trust in him. Trust in the one who has power over death. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we uh, come before you humbly, come before you, uh, hearing your word, hearing uh, the, the death and destruction that awaits all those who are in sin. And Lord, we know that this is the death uh, that we deserve to die, but instead, Lord Jesus, you die the death we deserve to die. You bore our sins in your body on the tree, and now we have life in you everlasting. As we have borne the image of the the man from dust, so will we bear the image of the man from heaven. What wonderful news, Lord Jesus. Help us to believe it. Help us to live in light of it. Help us to not despair of our sin, uh, but help us to trust in you. And we pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.